What's up, people? I'm Erica, and this is Cocktails and Capitalism, a podcast that pairs crafted beverages with stories distilled from our capitalist hellscape. Today, we're joined by Nika Savage. She's a member of the sovereign nation of Chitimacha, which translates to the people of many waters. Like her mother, who worked to revitalize the Chitimacha language, Nika has devoted much of her time to revitalizing the last remaining traditional art form of the Chitimacha tribe, the practice of river cane basket weaving. Nika is also working as a supervisor at 232 Help, a nonprofit that connects folks suffering from housing insecurity and natural disasters with state and federal resources, including rental and utility assistance programs and food resources like food pantries and distribution sites and SNAP. During hurricanes Laura, Delta, and Ida, she worked hard to help those in need by connecting them with local, state, and federal resources. So I'm really excited to have you here today, Nika. How are you doing? Thank you. I feel great. I'm uh, really excited to be here and so stoked to be on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Hell yeah. So happy to have you here. So the cocktail that we came up with for this episode is called the Red Wing Blackbird's Eye. Nika, can you tell us a little bit about the significance of that of that name? Yeah, so the way that it's pronounced in our language is Jektkani. It's one of my favorite basket designs, and it's also one of my very favorite legends. So our legend, in a nutshell, talks about how a flock of blackbirds helped to put out a fire that was burning down a village, and then after that, they had the colors of fire on their wings. So that's how the red-winged blackbird was created, and I used that pattern in my beadwork as well, and I like to use black with fire colors in my beadwork a lot because Mm -hmm. I just think it's really beautiful. Oh my gosh, that's incredibly beautiful. I love all the connections there. It seems also like it's it's perfectly fitting since some of the colors that are used most often in these baskets are like red and black. Yes, we use natural color of the cane, but we also use black, red, and yellow dye. And those are the only three colors that we ever use for dyeing our cane. Mm, very cool. So it's basically just a small diamond with a dot in the middle of it. And mm. it's usually just repeated many, many times. And it's a basket design that's very common, not just in our basketry, but in I've seen it in basketry all over the world. That's so cool. Well, thank you for that context. That's That really helps to bring the cocktail into the story. Even though you're not actually drinking over there right now, Nika is not a, a big drinker, right? You don't drink at all? No, I don't. Yeah. Okay, so I'd love to just kind of jump into the story here. Can you tell us a story of how you found yourself revitalizing the traditional basket weaving practices that had been lost to your family? Yeah, so I started doing beadwork when I was a kid at the Chitamacha Tribal School, and me and the other people in our class were using our basketry patterns in our beadwork because we really wanted to make our beadwork and our regalia represent who we are and not copy another style of beadwork. So it was important to us to kind of learn these basket patterns. So that's really when I first started working with the basketry patterns. And Mm -hmm. it's something that I still do. And many other people who bead in our tribe, they still do that as well. I always had a desire all throughout my life to just really deepen my personal connection to our culture and our ancestral home, you know, our land, our waterways, because to me, it's so beautiful. And I have such a special connection to it. You know, my family... My Chitimacha family has been living there for literally thousands of years. Mm. So even today, now that I've started weaving baskets for five years, I still will transcribe the basket patterns that I don't know yet into beadwork patterns to learn them and then Mm -hmm. weave a basket from that. So I don't know if it's necessarily the 
quote unquote correct way, but it's what works for me. So (laughs) from the stories that I've heard from you, it sounds like a lot of the people in your community have been very, very supportive of you getting into this work and really recognize your talent with this, which is amazing. (laughs) They really have. I am the first person to weave in my family for at least two, maybe even three generations. It's definitely a community effort. Even though I don't have a weaver that I work directly with, I never consider myself as weaving or working on my own because it takes the whole community to care for the cane. And there are many other people who have supported my learning, such as people from our cultural preservation department, Mm. my mother and other weavers, and um, just other friends and family members who really encourage me and kind of cheer me on as I learn the process. (laughs) That's so wonderful. I'm really, really glad to hear that you have that kind of support for revitalizing these practices that had been largely lost. Is that fair to say that it had been largely lost? I would say it is fair in a way because if we're talking about just a few centuries ago, basically every girl or woman in the tribe was a weaver. And Mm. there probably were some male weavers as well. We do have male weavers today, but it was traditionally a female art form. I see. And now there are only six of us who have learned to weave and woven continuously. There are a few people who have maybe woven like a part of a basket or one or two baskets, but Mm -hmm. for those of us who have actually practiced it for a long period of time, there are only six of us. Wow. That is such a tiny, tiny community of weavers. Do you know all of these people? Yes, I do. Um, I grew up on the reservation, so it's a very small community and we all know each other. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So when you're learning a pattern, you do it first using beads, and then that translates into baskets? Well, the way that I do some of my beadwork patterns is to use a graph paper. Um, And you can just use regular graph paper that you would use in math class, or you can actually go and print out like a PDF of bead graph paper, depending on (laughs) what type of stitch you're going to use. And so that's what I use. And I'll just kind of graph it out on there and then use that graph to then help me decipher how to weave it. (laughs) That's so cool. I like that there's like modernization there as well as like revitalizing the old practices. (laughs) I do like the idea of printing out a PDF to help you weave a basket by hand. It's amazing. (laughs) You do what you got to do sometimes. How do you translate You have a grid of cells, right? How do you translate that into... So I guess each cell represents like one under, one over with the weave? Yeah, basically. So it Mm. is a binary system. So it's over or under. And we will have our natural canes all going in one direction. And then if we're using dyed canes, they'll all go in the perpendicular direction. So I'll just Mm. decide, like for instance, white would be over and then my background might be black and red. And so that would be the under. Hmm. And I'm completely ignorant here. A cane is like <laughs> oh. one of the strands that you're using or? Yeah, maybe that would be a good thing for us to kind of explain. Like how, <laughs> yeah, what what are these baskets made out of? Oh, yeah, that's great to talk about. We make them out of river cane, which is a plant that's in the bamboo family. There are a few species that are native to North America, mainly growing in the southeastern region. And so it takes us a long time to process it down and get it ready for weaving. And we actually just split it into small strips 
and then we use the the peel of the cane and that's what we weave with. But it takes like weeks and weeks and weeks and there's so many steps to peeling it and preserving it, soaking it, leaving it out in the sun. I mean, from what the, what I read about the process, it's pretty labor intensive and takes a lot of time. Yeah, it is very labor intensive. Um, you get a lot of splinters and the edges, once you start to split it down, can be kind of sharp. So you have to handle it correctly or else you're going to cut yourself. Hmm. We dry it, we dye it, um, we have to peel it all two, sometimes three times, depending on the age of the cane as well. So lots of steps go into preparing. And I would say that the prep is just as important as the weaving, if not more hmm. important, because if you're not preparing your cane properly, your basket is not going to be strong and it might not look as, as neat yeah. and nice as you want it to. And I also imagine that like, that's the part of this practice where you were going out into the wild to gather the materials, interfacing with other species in the wild, you know, like to be able to create this beautiful art form. I would love to do art like this because just the process of going and gathering the materials and then processing them and then all of the labor that goes into it, it it's so almost sacred, you know, both the relation to nature and the relation to tradition. It's so beautiful. Yeah, it definitely is. And there are a lot of birds and especially spiders and mosquitoes in the cane <laughs> patch. I have developed a really deep appreciation for the beauty of spiders ever since starting to harvest cane because there is no avoiding them. There are really some cool looking spiders in the cane patch, but you just have to be careful. And if you're harvesting in the hot months, you know, there might be snakes or things like that. Out. Wow, so a lot of yeah. weavers do prefer to harvest when it's cold and the snakes are all hibernating. <laughs> Wow. I don't know if I want to interface with mosquitoes in and snakes any way. and spiders. Yeah, I don't know how sacred that would be to me. That'd be pretty <laughs> sacred to me. I like all that stuff. And you're doing all this yourself, right? You do the harvesting and the preparation yourself? I do. I go out and I harvest. And even that is a learning process because if you don't cut it down properly, you could actually damage the plant, which could lead hmm. to maybe the plant dying. Um, because since it is in the grass family, you don't want to let water get into the root system and start causing root rot. Mm. So you have to harvest it very carefully. And even though I had been practicing beadwork for maybe 20 years before I started doing baskets, maybe 25 years, basketry was the first time I ever went out into nature, harvested something myself, and just mm -hmm. made a finished item directly from the raw material completely wow. on my own in it really changed my perspective for all of the materials that I work with. Because no matter how many times we can process something and turn it into a new material, it always has come from a raw material that has been harvested straight from the earth. And doing all of that yourself and seeing every step of that process is so foreign to the capitalist model, <laughs> where everything is done by different people in different countries with different resources, you know. This is so immersive doing things yourself in the moment, in nature yourself. All of these experiences seem very immersive, and I love that about <laughs> just learning about these things. I would love to just kind of hear a little bit more about why this practice is so important to you and how you came back to it, how, how you kind of gravitated towards it. When I was very young, you know, younger than nine years old, we weren't living on the reservation. We were living in, you know, out of state and I did not have a lot of exposure to our community and to my Chitamacha culture. Then when I got to the reservation, when I was nine and we started living there, 
I almost felt like the culture had been hidden from me or maybe us in a way, you know, due to like assimilation and things like that. And it almost felt like the culture was kind of like behind a veil. Like I knew it was there, but Mm -hmm. I just couldn't really touch it. And so the first time that I saw the baskets, I just was so amazed by them. And River cane basketry is something that is practiced by quite a few Southeastern indigenous nations, not just our nation, but every nation has their own unique techniques and a lot of the designs are unique to that certain nation. Mm-hmm. It just was a way for me to connect with with who I am as a Cheetah Macha person because for a very mm-hmm. long time, I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I'm so glad that this has kind of been a vehicle for you just kind of deepening your connection with with your people, your history, so much of the culture that has literally been hidden behind a veil by residential schools, the erasure of indigenous culture that happens on so many different levels. Um, we touched on that a lot in some of the MMIW episodes, the very deliberate erasure of culture that has occurred in the U.S. How hard it is for a lot of the tribes to kind of recover their traditions and their indigenous perspectives when they've been ripped away from them by sending people off to residential schools, telling them they can't speak their language, telling them they can't, you know, wear any of their clothes, they can't practice their traditions. All of these things are much more deliberate than people commonly think, you know? Yeah, I do think that it's deliberate. There is a phrase that I think is commonly used, living off the land, and I prefer to think of it as living with the land mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, we're doing all these things with the plant, with the water, with the yeah. land. If we're living off of something, that really means we're using it and we're not really yeah. giving anything back. <laughs> and for this type of art to continue, you have to give back to the the cane. You have to give back to the land on which it grows and the water as well. Mm-hmm. But It's also just something that for me, when I wove my first basket, I just felt like I had came home inside and (laughs) I never really thought about why I wanted to weave. And the first time somebody asked me that question, I literally did not know what to say because I had (laughs) never really thought about like, how do I answer this question? It was just always something that was there for me. Uh Uh-huh. You just knew that you wanted to return to some of these things that you had felt estranged from. Yeah. And I was also largely influenced by my mom as well, because she mm. did a lot of work on revitalization programs and continuing our culture as well. Yeah. I read I read that article that you sent me about some of the work that your mother did, and it blew my mind just how much she was instrumental in keeping the language alive. Almost single-handedly, it sounded like... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a team effort. Um, There are quite a few people that have been involved and everybody kind of had, you know, their own niche. And so mainly she was teaching language lessons to the children at the daycare and Mm. doing classes for high school students and adults during the evenings because we have a Mm. tribal school, but it only goes up to eighth grade. So we um, do have a language program you know, that's available at the tribal school. And she also did an elders language class for quite some time, which was her absolute favorite because some of the elders that she taught would 
remember the words because they had heard their parents <laughs> speak them and they had oh not heard God. those words since they were like little kids. So it was sometimes oh really God. emotional, but it was also really cool. Very, very cool. So beautiful. I read in that article that some of them were so moved by the fact that they started dreaming in their traditional language that had been lost to them, you know, after learning it again, like, oh my God, how amazing. Yeah, that is really cool. I had one dream where I, and even though I don't speak my language fluently, and this was before I had started learning the language, I had one dream when I was a kid where I was speaking the language. And oh I was gosh. so surprised in the dream. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm doing it. Um, but <laughs> I still don't even know how that happened. <laughs> Did it sound at all like what the language actually sounds like? I mean, I guess it wasn't <laughs> as if it was a second language in the dream, though. Yeah, I was just yeah. literally speaking it. It was just it's my amazing. language. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the articles that I read to prepare for this episode was called Woven Into Being. It's about the Chitamacha Tribal Council's first female chairman, Melissa Darden. Or chairwoman, you might say. <laughs> chairwoman, Melissa Darden. <laughs> And uh, I, I wanted to read a quote from it because it had a lot of parallels to the story that you shared with me about how you first started weaving. Tribal legend tells us that the first Chitamacho weaver was a young girl who was walking down the road when the holy woman, an unseen deity, threw an unfinished basket at her with a simple directive, weave the basket, finish it up. <laughs> the girl completed the basket and later returned to the same road to learn more. She again encountered the voice of the holy woman, and over time, she mastered the art by practicing it under her guidance. Kind of a rude deity. <laughs> Finish it up! <laughs> Throwing baskets at people. <laughs> yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the story from your own life that has so many parallels to this, this legend? Yeah, so I didn't bead for a few years, and that all started when my children were little um, because I had one child who tried to eat everything, and I literally mean <laughs> no. everything. So I just started to pick up my beads and fell out of the habit, and then I started to bead again in 2013 or 2014. Once they were in college? No, they're still home, but, you know, that habit was broken. They they grew, outgrew that phase. They don't eat beads now? <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness, no. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Progress. <laughs> but, um, you know, he saw my beadwork and he just came to me and was like, Neek, you got to weave, you got to make my regalia. I think you can do it. And I was like, <laughs> I've never really made a regalia before. And he was like, I think you can do it. We'll work together. And so then he started showing up at my house with certain things. Oh, I'm going to come by. I have this for you. I have that for you. And he came by with an unfinished basket one day. And lucky for me, <laughs> he didn't throw it at me. He just handed it to me. Um, <laughs> he said, maybe you can finish this one day. This is something I started a long time ago. And I held on to it for... A couple of years, and it always just kind of like nagged at me, just sitting there taunting me. As he wanted it to do. Yeah, exactly. That was his plan <laughs> all along. And so my cousin started to weave maybe a year or so before I did, and she really encouraged me to start. So mm. I finished it, made it into a little small tray, and, and gave it back to him. And so it's in his mm -hmm. living room right now. <laughs> <laughs> that is so wonderful. I'm so glad you finished it and went on to do more and just incredibly beautiful work. I've looked at your beadwork, I've looked at your weave weaving, and you've done... You almost said weave work. Weave work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've looked at your basketry, and it is 
incredibly beautiful. So beautiful. Thank you. I'm so glad he gave you that impetus to do it. (laughs) Yeah, me too. And when I actually started to weave the basket, it was so interesting to me because it was stored in my grandparents' house for a long time. And whenever I started to weave it, I sprayed it with water because you have to wet it to make it more Mm. flexible. And Mm. it smelled like my grandparents' house. And I had not smelled that smell in like so long. And, you know, smells just (laughs) kind of take you back. And I was just like, wow, I can't believe that smell still exists in this cane. It was really cool. (laughs) That's amazing. So in general, it's really, really difficult to survive under capitalism off of art. As John said, Art is the first thing to die under capitalism. As I famously said. As he famously (laughs) said on the show. A few minutes ago (laughs) off mic. I'm really curious about the viability of doing this kind of weaving and supporting yourself on this work. Would you be able to support yourself selling the baskets you've learned to weave? I guess theoretically it's possible. I've never really devoted that much time, you know, to really see if it's possible. Yeah. Um, But there are definitely a lot of challenges because the market is extremely focused. You know, how many people are actually looking to purchase a Cheetah Matcha River Cane basket? Yeah. And the learning process is also very, very slow because there are different shapes. There are different, of course, weaving patterns. Some are much more intricate than others. And so they take a lot longer to learn. And the dyeing process takes quite a while. And if you're using natural dyes, that takes a very, very long time. Then also there's the process of double weaving, which is something that I haven't learned yet. So Mm. it takes years to develop these techniques and to prepare is also a really long time. And then there's the buyer's expectation of pricing. You know, a lot of Mm. buyers will try to negotiate a lower price from me. Mm -hmm. If I were to acquiesce to their request for a lower (laughs) price, I would probably be getting just a few cents or like a dollar or so for the time that I've spent per hour. Yeah, I do sell some of the baskets, but selling is just not really my primary focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How long does it take start to finish for one? So if I were to continuously harvest, prep, and then weave a basket... It will take me about... Without your day job. Right, exactly. Um, (laughs) So working, you know, maybe a few hours each day, nothing else to do, strictly focusing on baskets. Mm -hmm. It would take me three to five days just to get the cane ready to be dried. And then the drying process takes at least a week. And that's if the weather is good. It's going to take longer in the winter when the sun is not as strong and hot. And then the dyeing process will take another few weeks. And then you have to peel it and split it again as you're ready to weave. So already we're talking about weeks to a couple of months before I've even started to weave a basket. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so to actually weave the baskets, just as an example, a small tray that might be four inches by four inches, that might take me anywhere from... 12 to 15 hours and this is just an approximation and that depends on how intricate the pattern is and how narrow my canes are as well Uh, i see Uh uh-huh and all of them that i've seen so 40 dollars right for a oh my god fuck (laughs) off fuck you (laughs) actually i saw a bamboo basket um on sale 
for like $60. It was made somewhere in Asia. And I was so mad yesterday. I was no, like, there's no, no way. Because the website was like, oh, it's fair trade. We're sourcing ethically. And I was like, there's oh, no way those weavers God are getting what that it. basket was worth. Yeah, you know? yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, I've definitely seen people capitalizing on selling products based on indigenous designs from all over the world and then like drastically undervaluing it. And it's just like, oh, it's so fucking frustrating. <laughs> so disturbing to see. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. And I mean, with only six of us weaving, there are not that many quote unquote new baskets on the market. So yeah. a lot of what's being sold are baskets that have been acquired through an estate sale or maybe like an antique mm. shop or through an online selling platform at a price that is very below what it's probably actually worth. Oh, and so yeah. the person selling them has not spent the weeks and maybe months preparing and making this basket. And they definitely have not spent the years learning how to make the baskets that, that we have. And they probably have no concept of the cultural significance and the labor that goes into that product that they're reselling, you know? Yeah, a lot of people might not even be able to identify what what tribe it's from. Mm. And sometimes there are Asian bamboo baskets that are mistaken for indigenous baskets from here. And that's just because the material is very similar. And so sometimes the styles can look very similar. But if you know what you're looking at and you know what a river cane basket is, you'll be able to really tell that it's from here and not yeah. from some other part of the world. We've got land back. We should start doing basket back. Right? <laughs> oh my you can, God. You can, I support that 100%. You can sign up for a thing. When you die, all of the indigenously created baskets in my possession are returned to the tribe that created them. <laughs> that should be the fucking case. Yeah, actually. That's actually a good idea. It should. Send them to us. <laughs> Yeah, because God, if someone else just reselling it, that just sounds like a tragedy and undervaluing it at the same time. Ugh. So this is kind of a great place to pivot to talking about capitalism. I wanted to ask you about the role that capitalism has played in the story of the Chitamacha tribe and how it's basically affected your life and your work. Yeah, so river cane used to be very plentiful throughout the southeast, but large swaths of cane called cane breaks were cleared to make way for commercial agriculture, you know, grazing land, mm -hmm. crop land, things like that. And that happened during the 18th and 19th centuries. There was also a lot of deforestation that happened from the logging industry during that time as well. Mm -hmm. And as a result, that disrupted and degraded a lot of coastal ecosystems that existed here, especially where I'm from, you know, in Louisiana. And mm -hmm. that has played a major part in increasing the frequency and severity of catastrophic storms and coastal floods. And also, of course, extractive industries have played a huge part in that as well. Yeah. Culturally speaking, until our tribe began to replant the cane, it had become really hard to access. Mm. The cane that was accessible really was not in that great shape. Mm. It was small. It wasn't very healthy. And so mm. a lot of times maybe the peel was not as thick as it needs to be. If it's smaller, it's going to actually split more when you're trying to weave it because the diameter affects how it splits as well. 
And then you also have to think about corporate land. If it's posted, you cannot just go out onto land that is quote unquote owned by a corporation. I mean, you can fuck them. I mean, you can, but they don't, they definitely don't want you out there. And so to go far into the swamps to find the healthy cane, it became really difficult. Changes in the waterways made different cane breaks harder to access and things Mm. like that. I do think I would pay extra for like a pirate basket harvested off of corporate land. (laughs) Well, that's our (laughs) subset of consumers. (laughs) Yeah. Like not only was this made by an indigenous man, it was stolen from Exxon. Oh my God. I would pay some money for that shit. Right. That'd be a great selling this is point. Genuine Exxon cane right here. <laughs> Fuck the man. <laughs> Our dye plants were also, you know, they just have become harder to find. For instance, mm-hmm. the black walnut tree. We use black walnut hulls for the black cane. And they are very, very hard to find in this area anymore. Huh. So Just a lot of things have created those barriers to learning as well as when you have very few people doing the baskets, there are less people to teach. So Mm. the people who want to learn have to really, really make an effort to seek out the weavers and spend time pestering them with questions and you know the weavers of my tribe are also they're they're very very nice they just answer my random questions you know i'll just message them but actually just the other day i brought a bundle of cane that i just really am not going to use anymore to somebody that used to be in our class at the tribal school when i worked there and her parents contacted me and said, well, she wants to learn how to weave baskets. So um, oh. I've worked with her a little bit. And there's also a young man that I've worked with a little bit from a family that we know very well. He's He started to weave a basket and he's gotten part of a tray done, I think. But he also <laughs> dances and does beadwork too. Wow. Amazing. So we've kind of talked a little bit about the aspects of capitalism that have contributed to the disruption of these traditions and the destruction of this practice. Can you talk a little bit about what was able to keep these practices alive? Yeah, definitely. So during the late 19th century, there was a widespread interest in acquiring indigenous artifacts, not just um, here in Louisiana, but really just all over the nation. So There were a lot of baskets being sold, and at that time, the weavers were probably only getting just a few cents for their baskets. Oh my god. Not very much money at all. Not like today when you're richly compensated. (laughs) Oh, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So during that time, there was a chief named Benjamin Paul, and his wife, Christine Paul, was a weaver. And there was a lot of pressure coming from the federal government to pay back taxes on the land, and they were threatening to take the land, and that would have left our tribe with no claim to the land at all. And at that point, land had already been divided and sold off. Sorry, the, the U.S. government wanted the tribe to pay taxes on their own land? Yes, that is correct. You heard Fuck. that right. <laughs> I'm starting to get the impression that we have treated a lot of the Native Americans very badly. Are we the baddies? Are we the baddies? <laughs> oh, shit. God. <sighs> the fucking worst. 
Sorry. So yeah. this was going to yeah. potentially drive them off the land. Yeah. So she was writing letters to so many people and talking with lawyers and really just advocating as much as she possibly could. And there were two sisters from the McElhenney family. This is the family that founded the Tabasco Pepper Sauce Company. They took an interest in the baskets, and they developed uh, somewhat of a friendship with Christine Paul and the weavers of that time, but mainly her. And so they were also writing letters and advocating on the tribe's behalf, but they were kind of, I guess, maybe brokering the baskets. You know, they were selling them to art dealers and things like that. And so the baskets actually at one point were being sold on Fifth Avenue in New York City. Wow. Some ulterior motive there sounds like maybe. Definitely. I mean, they Mm. were placing extreme demands on the weavers, like saying, you know, we need, I think I saw a letter where they were demanding like 300 or like 200 baskets in like just a very short period of time. And they were also saying, well, this weaver her basket was not as nice this time and Mm -hmm. try this design. And so there are baskets from that time period that may not look exactly traditional. And that's because that outside influence was there. Wow. Yeah. Can you make mine look like a Pikachu? (laughs) (laughs) In their mind, they were helping as much as they could. Yeah. White savior complex much? Definitely. I mean, (laughs) really just placing a great, great hardship on the weavers of that time. Mm. And they were just literally weaving as much as they could to try to raise money to pay these back taxes. And in the end... To keep the um, land. Yeah. In the Mm. end, they just could not weave enough. They literally could not. And so one of the sisters wrote a check, I want to say, for like $2,000 to pay the back taxes. And she paid it off. Capitalism saves the day again. Right, exactly. <laughs> Get out of here, John. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. Terrible indeed. <laughs> but at the same time, I like to kind of think of it as Christine Paul just kind of turning the tables on them. Yeah. Not only were they capitalizing on her and making these just outrageous demands, but she was using that to do what she could to save our community, mm-hmm. to help us retain our home. And so that's where our reservation is to this day. It's the last remaining village, and it has a lot to do with the efforts of her and the weavers of that time. That's fascinating that weaving was actually something used to keep the land. Yeah, so we have a history that is estimated to go back a few thousand years. Our traditional territory is somewhere around like Lafayette, Louisiana would be the most westerly region. Mm. And then all along the coast to what they call the tip of the boot, you know, so basically the whole southeastern coastal area of Louisiana. And over time, because of colonization and genocide, the land just slowly got reduced and reduced until Mm. there's really only one, one village that we can say like, We are a sovereign nation and this is our, you know, our home. Another thing that I would just kind of like to touch on is that, you know, capitalism is also affecting land loss in a very, very literal sense for coastal communities, (sighs) not just in Louisiana, but throughout the world, because land back is such an important movement. Mm -hmm. But what do you do when your land is underwater, you know, or it has been washed away? That is a brilliant fucking point, though, and like something that I haven't heard anyone else really talking about. 
land back in relation to climate change and how that affects the land that can even be given back. <laughs> like, kind of mind blowing to think about that. I mean, it definitely does. You know, fuck, we're we fucked this world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you don't have the ecosystems in place to kind of hold it there, you know, yeah. it's going to just wash away, or as the water yeah. level rises, it's just going to go underwater. So that story isn't really so much about how her tribe managed to keep basketry alive. It's about how the practice of basketry might have saved some of the land that belonged to her tribe. (laughs) Beautifully put, actually. Do you think that's fair? Well, I think it's actually kind of both, because as our traditional ways were slowly lost, the need for the baskets has changed because traditional basketry is very closely connected to traditional life ways and especially traditional Mm. food ways. And so Mm. as those systems of education and social systems were disrupted and even in some cases discontinued, the uses of the baskets just had changed. And so the outside demand for the baskets gave people a reason to keep weaving. It also changed them from mostly functional to mostly ornamental. Mm -hmm. Which is arguably the worst thing you could be under capitalism. Ornamental? Well, but that moves it more into the pure arts. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely do think that's a valid point. And that is one reason why the focus of my weaving is to return our baskets to the home of my family and um, my extended family. So I do give some of my baskets away to like my aunts, my sister, my uncle. I keep some here in our home to use because it's something that I didn't grow up with. My mom didn't have that. My, My grandparents did not have that. And so um, it's really, really special to me to have these baskets sitting Mm. on our kitchen table um, and use them as, you know, just for holding whatever, coasters, fruit, things like that. Returning them to their real purpose in the world, not just being a decoration on a wall or on a, like, in a cabinet somewhere. Sidebar, oh, sidebar, come on down to the sidebar. Talk shit about capitalism. Welcome back to the sidebar, everyone. We're joined again by Jesse Torres, who uh, has another great drink for us. Uh, Jesse, how's it going? It's going great. How are you? I'm doing really good. So, the drink for this week is called the Jekt Kani, and that is a Chirimacha word that means. Red wing blackbird's eye. And that is actually one of the patterns that's incorporated in a lot of the basketry work that Nika does. Jesse, do you want to tell us how you made this drink? So this drink is basically based off of the pattern that she uses for her, her basketry, um, especially this one. Um, I had a chance to see it online um, on her Instagram, and it's a really beautiful uh, geometric pattern. Um, and I decided to mimic that on the drink. So the drink is basically in a glass with pebble ice. And then on the top, we have blackberries and raspberries, which are the same colors that she's using in the pattern. And they're basically placed in the same same pattern. <laughs> which is basically a, a diamond with a circle in the middle of it on the top of the ice. Very cool. Yeah. And so, so basically the, the drink looks very similar. I mean, as close as you can. It's, it's not... It's not weaving, but... Yeah. (laughs) 
you know, it, it conveys the, the idea. I love that. And I love that you actually included the pattern itself in the, in the drink. That's very cool. Yeah. And it's a delicious drink too, by the way. They're from Louisiana. And so I thought it would be great to use a spirit from Louisiana. Personally, I would suggest using a three-roll rum, which is based in Louisiana. And because basket weaving is using, in this case, river cane, mm-hmm. it's a type of grass and, you know, so is sugar cane. So it's a pretty nice close <laughs> connection using cane in both, you know, the drink and the basket <laughs> weaving. I love that. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, three Roll is a really great distillery. Um, they make really delicious rum and all of their sugar cane is grown locally there in Louisiana as well. How cool. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things that you actually go to the place where we're, where the story is based and you try to find uh, spirits that are based there. That's that's awesome. So you can also make this drink non-alcoholic instead of the rum or a different spirit. Uh, you can always use a non-alcoholic type spirit. Um, I like using Seedlip based out of England, but there's a lot of really great non-alcoholic spirits on the market these days. Last time I checked, there was probably... Closer to 30 or more, maybe 50 now. I don't know. There's a lot. Um, If you don't drink, it's pretty easy to still drink cocktails and enjoy, you know, drinks at a bar at your home by using really good non-alcoholic spirits. Seelip's really great. It's still distilled just like a spirit would be, but um, they're not actually using alcohol. It's it's water that's being distilled with other botanicals and things. So Hmm. um, Seelip's are more akin to like a gin. Because they're flavored with botanicals and things, and it's really delicious. So in this drink, we're using the Grove 42, which is a more citrus-forward, non-alcoholic spirit. Mm. And we're also using a little bit of simple syrup, some fresh lemon juice, and then ginger beer to top it off. Very nice. So it's a pretty simple, very bright, delicious drink. And the star of the show is really the blackberries. So to make this drink, you're going to take 45 milliliters of your three-roll rum or your non-alcoholic spirit, about 15 milliliters of simple syrup. You can always adjust that to your sweetness level. About 15 milliliters of fresh lemon juice and 30 milliliters of ginger beer. So you take your spirit, your simple syrup and your lemon juice, and you put it in a shaker and you shake it with ice. But don't pour into your glass just yet. Uh, Take your glass and take about three blackberries and put them in the bottom. And then pour a little bit of the drink in there just to get it a little bit wet at the bottom. And then mm. give it all a muddle so you'll have a really nice mm. uh, dark blackberry thing going on down there. <laughs> then you want to take some crushed ice or even some pebble ice if you have it and pack the glass in. Um, if you don't have pebble ice and you want to make crushed ice, it's really easy. Just take a clean kitchen towel, put whatever ice you have in there, wrap it all up so you have like a little sack. And then beat it with a mallet or a rolling pin or something blunt so that it all gets crushed up. (laughs) Then take that and pack it in the glass. So what you'll have is a layer of smashed blackberries at the bottom, then the ice on top. And then you're going to pour your drink that you've shaken on top. Mm. Lastly, add the ginger beer. And what you'll see is happening is as you pour the drink in, the blackberry mixture at the bottom will slowly rise to the top and it'll have these really beautiful streams and it's really gorgeous. Ooh, cool. Um, <laughs> and then this is where you get creative. So for the garnish, um, get your raspberries and blackberries and put them in the shape of the jetkani and you'll have your own little weaving pattern on top. <laughs> that's it. Enjoy. That's so beautiful. One of the central ingredients that we really want to include in this one was blackberries because they're so abundant in the area where Nika lives. 
I love the aesthetic of this drink, and I love I love the taste that you've incorporated together with the ginger and the blackberry. And I think this is just like the perfect creation to honor this tradition that we are trying to talk about. I, I really hope that Nika is happy with it and that she she makes the non-alcoholic version and enjoys that at home. <laughs> Jesse, so you, you muddle the berries in the glass mm-hmm. and then you cover them with the crushed ice is the idea yeah. that like, because I know normally you when you muddle things in the shaker, it's to so you can like strain out some of mm-hmm. the some of the bits, right? Is the idea yeah. here that the ice packed on top acts as that strainer for the drink and yeah. you just kind of infuse the drink? Yeah, totally. It, it's got a couple reasons why it allows it to be a filter, the, the ice. Um, so it kind of holds some of the solids back, not all of them. So I guess I wouldn't suggest doing this if you're not fam- you know comfortable with drinking some of the blackberry solids. It also makes the drink look really nice. You know, when you muddle them in the drink and you shake it together, the whole drink becomes, you know, that one dark color because of the blackberries. Mm -hmm. But when you mix the drink without the blackberries, it's rather clear. And with the ice, it looks like like watercolor. You know, it's like really clear and beautiful. Mm -hmm. So that when you put it in the drink, the blackberry juice will slowly rise to the top Mm -hmm. of the drink. And it will create these beautiful streaks through the ice. And it looks really, really cool. (laughs) It's gorgeous. Wow. Mm-hmm. Can't wait to see your photo, too, that, and share it with people. One thing I wanted to ask you about is the non-alcoholic spirits. I've never tried one before, and I've been so curious about that. Mm-hmm. Is it a reasonable facsimile? Is it a very like alcohol in any way? It's not because there's two characteristics of alcohol. One especially that makes it alcohol and, and, and not something else is that, mm-hmm. you know, it does have a burn to it. Mm-hmm. Alcohol to some de- some degree, like, gives your mouth a certain sensation that just yeah. doesn't get replicated with that. And it also has a different weight. You know, alcohol has its own hmm. chemical composition and it has its own mouthfeel. You know, people drink non-alcoholic drinks all the time and it, they don't even think about it. Like when you go to have a Coke, you know, or a Powerade or... An, a sweet tea. These are all non-alcoholic drinks, but you know, you drink them normally. Like they're just drinks, you know. So Wait, you can drink things that don't have alcohol in them. Well, we add alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What the fuck? If you're trying to 100% replicate an alcoholic drink, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh huh. But I think you should enjoy it instead for what it is, mm-hmm. and not necessarily what it's it's not. So, yeah. you know, when you have a non-alcoholic drink um, like this. You know, I don't think you're going to miss the alcohol, really. I mean, it's going to taste delicious just on its own, and it's going to be, like, really fulfilling in that way. Like, mm-hmm. not because it has alcohol, but just because it's it's a really good drink. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I definitely want to try that sometime in case I ever have to cut back on drinking, but I want to keep enjoying enjoying my cocktails. Yeah, it's really great. I, I, I think the best benefit for non-alcoholic spirits like C-Lip is that it adds different flavors and dimensions of flavor that you can't get anywhere else because mm-hmm. they're they're making a non-alcoholic spirit that tastes like whatever spirit they they're making like it doesn't taste like anything else so mm-hmm. if you want to add variety and add something different to your drinks it's great because you know they have some that mimic like the botanicals you'd find in gin so it's like very nice. junipery or citrusy yeah and so you know w- when you add it with like tonic for example you know it it makes a pretty good gin and tonic that mm-hmm. tastes similar and That's so cool. Yeah, you know, because you're you're adding these things together, and 
Yeah, it's 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 a really cool thing, you know, and and some of them are kind of a bit outlandish, I think. Like some of them are trying to replicate whiskey or it kind yeah, of yeah. falls flat. <laughs> that seems like it would be a hard thing to replicate, but Yeah, so far no one's like done it really well. <laughs> yeah. You know what I do is if if cuz I do miss like with non-alcoholic stuff, you do kind of miss the burn. I just put you just put a little bit of paint thinner in <laughs> Don't be telling yeah. our our listeners to be consuming paint thinner, John. <laughs> yeah, I would recommend kerosene. That that helps you a lot better than <laughs> yeah, there you paint go. thinner. <laughs> and the cool thing about it is you can still light the bar on fire with kerosene. So <laughs> oh, sweet, yeah. You can still do your flaming. Get a real Dr. burn Peppers. going. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for putting in the time to create both an alcoholic and a non-alcoholic version of this drink, because I think that's a really, really nice way to include people, and especially because Nika doesn't drink. And since alcohol has a, a very complicated history with indigenous communities, I think it's nice to have that as an option as well there. So really, really appreciate your work to put these beautiful, beautiful drinks together, Jesse. Yeah, of course. I'm always happy to. It's like, it's a lot of fun for me. I, I really, you know, I don't get to make drinks very much behind the bar anymore. I mean, I don't work behind oh, yeah. the bar right now. So yeah. like, there's definitely a part of me that wants to still do that and to still be creative and make things. So, <laughs> Well, you're so good yeah. at it and we're so freaking lucky to have you doing it. <laughs> yeah, well, doubling it. your pay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> to, to zero. Oh, God. <laughs> All right, Jesse. One well, thanks. dollar. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Oh, whoa, whoa. That's like most of our profit. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Jesse. This is a great, great drink, and I'm so happy to have you back on the show. Well, thank you. It's always great to be here, and I hope you all enjoy it. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> So we talked a little bit about how you are currently working at 232 Health, serving people in need uh, by connecting them with the resources that can help them out. I wanted to hear a little bit about how you transitioned from doing this work with weaving and how this kind of fed into the work that you're currently doing now. Yeah. So prior to the pandemic, I was working locally doing demonstration of river cane basketry and also finger weaving. And then that job was shut down. And at the time, we weren't sure how long they were going to be closed at the place that I was working at. Because of the pandemic. It, yeah, because of the pandemic. And mm. it was just like everything was so up in the air in March 2020. Yeah. We got a group email from the director there. And he was saying, you know, we're closed for an indefinite amount of time. Mm. If you are looking for an opportunity for employment, please let me know. There are some connections that I can help you out with. And so being a mom of three, having a family to support, I immediately was like, yes, please let me know. Oh, gosh, yeah. And yeah, he gave me the email of the 232 help supervisor at the time. <laughs> so I contacted her and she was like, can you come in for a training? And I said, sure. And I went in. We literally had one hour of training and we had... <laughs> The, we had these old like phones that you plug into your router and plug into the computer. And it it's literally the phone that is on the show, The Office. So if you have seen their desk phones, that is the phone that we had. Like that is it. Same ring, oh same God. exact phone. Goddamn. <laughs> yeah. 
And so I started taking calls. After an hour of training? Yeah, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. We were taking calls from our region and also the New Orleans region because they were just being inundated with calls. And so we were offering assistance to them by taking a portion of their calls. Hmm. And those New Orleans calls just really threw me for a loop because I do not know my way around New Orleans. And yeah. So it was I really bet. difficult to <laughs> um, tell people where certain food pantries are, yeah. were. And I was just like so confused. <laughs> Oh, gosh, that would be rough. So, Nika, can you tell us a little bit more about what 211 is? 232 Help is one of the three contact centers for Louisiana 211. And 211 is a three-digit dialing code that you can call, and you will be connected to a specialist who is going to listen to what you need ask you for basic information such as like zip code of where you're trying to locate resources Mm -hmm. and look up anything that might be available to help you meet that need. For instance, rental assistance or utility assistance or how to apply for SNAP, which is the program that's formerly known as food stamps. When people call us, there's typically a low wait time unless we're in a disaster and we have a, a super lot of calls. Something that we hear from people so many times is that just to speak to a live person on the phone is such a great experience because yeah. I think we've all been on a phone call where you're pressing buttons and you're just in this automated system. Maybe you just get stuck in this loop. They don't really have an option for what you need and there's nobody to really ask. And you're ripping your hair out. <laughs> exactly. Our call specialists are going to listen and help you navigate that process. Is this like a state program or is this a nonprofit? Well, we are a standalone nonprofit, but we're part of a Louisiana 211 network. And 211 mm-hmm. is actually available nationwide. Mm-hmm. In many, 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 like it's not in every state, but. Yeah, it's almost all states. Uh-huh. So there are so many different 211 contact centers everywhere, really. Every center is a little bit different, but the general mission remains the same to connect people with somebody who's going to um, provide confidential assistance to help them locate resources. Mm hmm. And this makes me think we should really include in the episode description some links to 211 resources because I'm sure a lot of people suffering under capitalism right now (laughs) may find themselves in a situation where they need to reach out to get help, assistance with housing, assistance with food, get assistance during a disaster. So that's that's something that we can provide in the description. Yeah, because if you just go to 211.org, you can click on a nationwide locator where you just put in your zip code and it will bring up um, the direct line, like the toll-free number for the 211 that exists in your area. That's awesome. Cool. So cool. (laughs) So, so much of the work that you've done with 232 Help has been during this pandemic. I guess all of the work that you've done. Can you tell us a little bit about how the pandemic has changed the kinds of services you're having to provide, how it's changed, the kind of calls that you're getting? How has this affected your work? Yeah, so first in March 2020, there were just so, so many calls per day. Um, On my third or fourth day of work, I took over 80 calls. And then on my fifth day of work, I took over 100 calls. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, so before I got promoted to supervisor, I was actually on the phones taking calls for about seven and a half months. And 
During that time, I took about 8,000 calls, give or take. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And they were not all related to the pandemic, but a a lot of them were. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, there was just a lot of uncertainty. You know, people were wanting to know, what are the symptoms? What are the quarantine guidelines? What are the changes to any of these guidelines? You know, Mm. lots and lots of questions. And also there was a really, really... Um, high need for financial assistance as well as food assistance, just people knowing where to go to get food to put in their house. Then as the pandemic kind of went on, we had other things that happened on top of that here in Louisiana, you know, hurricanes and other weather events. Hmm. Those were times where we saw, you know, drastic increases in call volume as well. Yeah. So a lot of community-based organizations found themselves in a position of having to try to meet the needs of a much higher number of of Mm. people and applicants than they were before the pandemic. And so it was placing strain on these agencies at local and statewide levels as well. We have seen, you know, just larger Um, increases in housing instability, food insecurity, people losing or having a reduction in their income. People needed and still need equitable access to health care, you know, and mental health care as well. Because when you are in isolation or quarantine, um, that definitely affects your mental health. And especially post-disaster as well, you know, because if you're in a severely affected area and you may have lost your entire house and everything, all of your belongings, that is definitely going to have a a huge effect on your mental and emotional health. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing that there are people to call in those moments. Like I'm so, I'm so grateful that services like this even exist in America or anywhere in the world because, God, (laughs) you're talking about like getting frustrated dealing with automated systems over the phone. Imagine dealing with that shit in the middle of an environmental crisis, a natural disaster, uh, like an economic crisis, a pandemic, you know, (laughs) like all of these things. I mean, definitely. Um, I guess I would also like to touch on the fact that Remote work has its benefits, but it also has challenges as well. Mm, mm -hmm. How so? Well, if people are normally used to going into an office to complete an application because they might not have internet access or they might just not be comfortable navigating the internet, they are going to face challenges when there's only an online form or only an application that's online to, um, to complete. So there are those challenges that exist when people are just saying, you know, all of our workers are remote, you can't come into our office. And then if you have really high call volumes, you're going to have really long hold times. And so some people may get frustrated and hang up and never get the assistance that they actually need because who wants to wait on hold for two or three hours just to talk to somebody? Yeah. Because you have things going on in your in your house, you know, and in your life. You might not be able to just stay on the phone that long. Yeah, totally. So at the end of episodes, we like to kind of do a call to action so that listeners can follow up and learn more about the topics that we're presenting. I would love to hear about what you would like to leave listeners with and and where they can go to find you. Okay, yeah. Um, well, first off, I would just like to ask people, um, please don't kill River Kane, um, because a lot of people... <laughs> 
just want to get it off of their property and remove it. But it's actually very, very good for the environment. It provides habitat for animals and it cleans the air and water. Hmm. So if a person really just feels like they need it off of their um, their property, I would say contact any local indigenous nation and just see if they have a river cane preservation project going mm. on. They might, I can't promise that they do, but they might be willing to transplant it. Wow. There are universities that are taking on this work as well. And even native plant societies who might be willing to kind of transplant it <laughs> to a place where it can grow and flourish. And I would also just like to say, if you don't live in an area where river cane grows, obviously it's it's local to the southeast, just get to know what kind of indigenous weaving is practiced in the area where you mm-hmm. are, or even other traditional arts that are mm-hmm. practiced where you live. Because indigenous weavers and, you know, mainly all traditional artists all over the world are preserving and even in a lot of cases restoring biodiversity. And that is just so, so important. As far as like disasters, of course, disaster recovery is super, super important when there are major natural disasters that happen and even man-made disasters, they tend to get a lot of media coverage and that comes with a spike in assistance and volunteer. And that is so important, but I think it's also important to be aware of the community needs that exist on a daily basis that really aren't necessarily getting um, Mm. the mass media coverage that widespread and severe disasters get. That's such a good point. And some great insight from the kind of work that you've been doing where you are seeing a lot of the unmet needs out there and trying to help with those. I also kind of wanted to add that like, it's so important to buy directly from the producers of these indigenous art forms, because if you are getting something that's sold, resold someplace, and you aren't supporting the actual creators of these art forms, then you're not helping to keep these things alive. And that is so fucking important. So I really encourage people to support indigenous producers, go directly to those producers and buy the products directly from them. So Nika, where can people find your work? I have an Etsy shop. It's Four Trees Design Co. And that's F-O-U-R. I named that after the four sacred cypress trees that used to stand at the boundaries of Chitamacha territory, oh, wow. uh, but those trees um, actually died long, long ago. Mm. So I'm also on Instagram as Four Trees Design Co. That's where all my weaving is. And then my beadwork page is Savage Sister Beads. <laughs> so cool. I guess I would just like to uh, give a shout out to a couple of specific weavers who have been really, really influential. Oh, awesome. Um, definitely Melissa Darden, who has a website, cheetahmachabaskets.com. Mm. Also, John Paul and Scarlett Darden and my cousin, Courtney Thomas Malagary. Mm. And the Cherokee weaver, Vivian Garner Cutrell. She has been great and answers my questions whenever I ask them as well. <laughs> <laughs> I love that kind of network and support system that is just a, that you are so willing to answer people's questions when they reach out to you and that so many other people are willing to answer your questions when you reach out to them. That's really, really awesome. Really beautiful. Before we before we go, I, I had one question. Nika, do you do you see yourself giving someone an unfinished basket anytime soon? <laughs> oh, that's a really good question. Yeah. A couple of years ago at a powwow, I was working on one and somebody wanted to buy it from me unfinished. Mm. But I didn't sell it because I was like, it's just going to come apart. <laughs> but um, actually, that person... 
they come from a family um, from a weaver who never sold her baskets. She mm. only wove her baskets for family use. And that has been part of what has inspired me to um, make baskets for my family. Very cool. Well, this story was was so beautiful and really touching. And I don't know, it just felt so, so um, tangible compared to a lot of the other stories that we cover. Like it's really, I love the detail that we went into and and the personal details from your story that, that we were able to share. So thank you so much for sharing all of these very intimate and affecting details about your life, your story, the traditions that you are working to revitalize. It's a really, really powerful story, and I'm I'm very touched by it all. Thank you so much. That means a lot, and uh, it was a really great experience. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. That's our show for this week. Thank you to Nika for appearing on the podcast. Thanks to Jesse for the great cocktail. Thank you to Dreamweaver and Rathbone for our theme songs. Uh, as many of you know, the only true way to defeat capitalism is to give us your money. To give us your money, you can visit patreon.com and go to Cocktails and Capitalism. You can get some benefits like our super cool enamel pin. Keep sending your stories in about what made you an anti-capitalist. You can send those to cocktailsandcapitalism at gmail.com. We'll see you next week. <laughs>